in the movie Field of Dreams. It's a baseball movie, but it's not really about baseball, you know? In the movie Field of Dreams, the great baseball player, Shoeless Joe Jackson, his ghost shows up in a cornfield where someone has made a baseball diamond. He's standing there in this perfectly manicured baseball diamond, and he looks around and he sees Kevin Costner, who's the man who did it. He said, is this heaven? And Costner says, no, it's Iowa. So that's a, it's a clever little movie, and that's a nice line, but it made me think, would I recognize heaven if I saw it? Would we know heaven if we were there right now? We're going to be talking over the next 10 weeks, including today, about what the Bible actually says about heaven. Some of you grew up in church, and you grew up being told, you know, we can't really know what heaven's like. It's beyond our comprehension, so don't even try. And the people who told you that were well-intentioned, but they were wrong. I respectfully say they were wrong. And I'll tell you why. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It is a command of God that we're supposed to be thinking about the world to come. And God wouldn't command us to do something we're not capable of. So if we're supposed to daydream about heaven on a continual basis, and we are, then that must mean He's given us enough information to go on. And throughout the Scriptures, what I'm going to show you is, throughout the Scriptures, there's information about the world to come, about the life that comes after this, that is strong enough and vivid enough that you can sit and daydream about it in your, in your spare moments, when you're driving, when you're trying to fall asleep, when you don't have anything else to do, and just think about what that world's going to be like. And here's what that'll do for you. If you're going on, if you're getting on in years and life is getting difficult because your body's failing, it'll give you hope and it'll, it'll lift you out of your doldrums. If you're young and you think, well, I don't need to think about all that, it's, that's years away. Well, number one, it may not be, but number two, it changes the way you live now. It fills your life with hope. It imbues this life with a brand new meaning, and we're going to talk about why today. So John 13, uh, I'm sorry, John 14 is the story, is part of the story of Jesus' last night on earth. So imagine Jesus, he knows within hours He's going to be betrayed by one of his 12 best friends. He's going to be abandoned by the other 11. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten, tried thrown before the Romans, his own people will deny him and condemn him, he will be sentenced to die, he will be flogged, and then he'll be crucified. All of this is going to happen before the next sundown. So lots on his mind. But he chooses that moment, that moment, to speak these words of hope to his disciples. John 14, 1-3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, real quick, raise your hand if you've ever heard that before. Okay, very good. Now, raise your hand if you've ever heard that at a funeral. Okay. This is a very common passage to preach at funerals. I've done it many times. And let me tell you how I've often heard this passage preached. In fact, in my younger years, I preached it this way. It goes something like this. You know, in the King James Bible, it says, In my father's house are many mansions. Old Joe right here, you know, he didn't have a mansion in this life. He lived in a, a common little A-frame house, but now he's got a mansion. He's got a glorious mansion. The master carpenter's been working on it for 2,000 years. Don't you know, that is one incredible house. Now, let me tell you two problems with that. Number one, 
the word mansion that was used by the King James translators 500 years ago, and they did a good job. They translated the Bible faithfully according to the English language of their time. In the 1500s, the English word mansion didn't mean what we mean when we say mansion today. It simply meant a place to live. And that's what the Greek word means. John uses a Greek word, monai, which simply means a place to stay. Notice, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many places to stay. That's why the newer versions say it are many rooms, because it fits with Jesus' metaphor of heaven being a big house, and there's a, ha- there's a room in that house for every single one of us, you, me, every person who's in Christ. But he's not going to run out of room. He's not going to say, okay, you're going to have to go down the street. I'll rent you a hotel. No, there's room in my Father's house for you. Let me tell you another problem with this. It ignores the thing Jesus says just after that when he says, if I'm going there to prepare a place, I will come back. See, our hope, our hope, our ultimate destination and the thing we should most be looking forward to is not, I'm going to die and go be with Jesus. It is, Jesus is coming back someday. Let me show you what I mean. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Now before I read that, let me tell you a little story, okay? Next week we're going to talk about what happens when we die. We'll talk a little bit about it today, but we'll talk about it in detail next week. Right now, we're looking at what is heaven really? So let me tell you this little story. Imagine imagine an American is captured abroad by hostile powers. Maybe a soldier, maybe a missionary, maybe an aid worker. This, This American citizen is captured and is held captive for years. They're mistreated. They're abused. Ultimately, an elite team of American uh, troops come and rescue this American and they bring them home. Now imagine this, this American citizen is on a flight to the United States, and instead of going to his home, which is somewhere in the Texas, in the Houston area, he goes to Washington, D.C. Why? Because the president wants to see him. Because Congress wants to have him as a special guest. Because uh, the Today Show wants to interview him, and CBS Morning Show, and every other morning show you can name. And so he's put up in a nice four-star hotel. His family is flown by the government to D.C. to be with him. Instead of sleeping on a cold concrete floor, he's sleeping in a king-size bed. Instead of scrounging food and, and eating whatever scraps they happen to give him so he doesn't starve to death, he's feasting on steak and lobster and creme brulee. Instead of, instead of being spat upon and cursed and even tortured at times, he's treated like a hero. He's embraced by his family. He enjoys laughter. He enjoys affection. He enjoys kindness. Is he in a good place? Absolutely. Is he in a better place than he was before? You can't even imagine how much better. But is he home yet? No, he's not home yet. He's in a wonderful place. His troubles are over, but he hasn't yet come home. So what for the Christian is home? See, that that story represents the place we go when we die. Again, we'll talk more in detail about that next week. But what is home for a believer in Jesus? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What is Paul talking about? He's comparing our earthly bodies to a tent. It's a pretty good metaphor, actually, because our bodies tend to wear out over time, don't they? 
This body, y'all looking at me, this is as good as it's ever going to get for Jeff Berger, okay? It ain't getting any better. It's only getting worse from here. I'm like the iPhone every year. There's a newer, crummier version of me, okay? And that's the same with you. The earthly tent is going to be destroyed, but there is an eternal house. In other words, there's a better body waiting for us. We'll talk about that in this series in a couple of weeks. He says, chat, verse 2, Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ." so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So last week we talked about the thief on the cross, Jesus saying to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He repented there at the end. Jesus said, I've been waiting for you to make that move. Now you'll be with me today, today. That's the assurance we have. Paul says in verse 8, to be absent from this body is to be home with the Lord, to be in his presence. So why in verse 4 does he say, But we groan, longing not to be unclothed, but to be clothed. What he's saying is, to be absent from the body present with the Lord is great, but that's to be unclothed. That's good, but what's even better is to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about the resurrection of the body. He's talking about the fact, okay, y'all hear me? Y'all hearing me right now? The ultimate vision of Scripture for eternal life for God's people is not wispy spirits floating around in some foggy, mystical world, strumming harps, angel wings, halos. That's not the vision of Scripture. It's not a disembodied existence. It is when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised, and we will inhabit new bodies, new imperishable bodies, perfect bodies, and we will walk a redeemed earth, an earth that is perfect, an earth that is is unspoiled, an earth that perfectly exhibits the glory and the power and the grace of our God. And that will be our life. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's great. But you know what I hope? I hope I don't die. I don't have this in-between time. I I hope I go straight from here to the new earth, to the new body. It didn't happen for Paul, but that's what we all should hope for. In fact, when you read the scriptures, you'll see it over and over again. So here you go. I'm about to hit you with a whole bunch of scripture. Because listen, I know this is new stuff to a lot of you. You've been told growing up, well, you know, you die, you go to heaven, you'll be with Jesus, that's all. But there's more to the story. There's more to the story, and I want to show you where I get that in the Scriptures. I'm going to read these fast, so you might want to write these references down so you can go back and look at them again. Daniel 12, 2 through 3. 
Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Verse 13 goes on to say, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will, re- you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. I'm not going to read them, but you can see also Psalm 49, verse 15, and Isaiah 26, verse 19. In the New Testament, there's tons of information about the resurrection. Here's one of many times Jesus spoke about it himself, John 6, 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up. Up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. You see that? It's all about resurrection. It's all about living in a new body. Romans 8, 11. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what first fruits means? It means since Jesus has been raised, so will we. We will rise just like he rose. You know that up until about 100 years ago, most Christians would place on their tombstone, I will arise, or looking forward to the resurrection, or something to that effect. It's only been in the last few decades, the last century, that Christians have lost sight of the fact that the resurrection is our ultimate hope. And we started believing in a vision of heaven that's not that much different from the vision of non-Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. We know this passage, many of us, in the context of an earthly rapture of the redeemed. Whether or not you believe in a rapture, and that's something that's, that's not clear in Scripture, whether or not you believe in it, it does speak of resurrection. Now listen to what it says. This is Paul writing to his Thessalonian friends who are concerned about their loved ones who have died. Fellow believers who have died in Christ, and they're like, what happened to them? Will I see them again? Notice, Paul does not say, don't worry, because when you die, you'll be with them in the presence of Christ. Notice what he does say instead. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Again, it's not wrong to say to a grieving Christian, don't worry, you'll see them again. When you die, you'll be with them in heaven. That's true. But notice, that's not what Paul says. We'll talk about that next week. What Paul says here, what consistently is in the Scriptures, our hope is not dying and being with Jesus. That's the intermediate. Our hope is the resurrection. Now, I know, because anytime I talk about this, anytime I talk about this, people who are faithful believers in Christ, who are deep into the Scriptures, will say, why have I never seen this before? And some people get mad about it. Some people get downright upset with me, and they say, I don't like this. I I don't like thinking that my loved one who's already died is not where they ultimately will be. And to that I say, it's still a much better place than we are now. Again, think about that metaphor of the captive. He's been set free. He's in a wonderful place. His troubles are over. And that's true of us if we die in Christ before he returns but it's still not home. There's something even better to come. That is the consistent teaching 
of Scripture. And let me tell you why that's better than the idea that we all go to an ethereal place up in the sky when we die. Let me tell you why this view is better than the view we've grown up believing. Three reasons. Number one, because it means God's plan was victorious. So think about this. What is the plan of God? The story of the, the earth begins in Genesis 1 when God creates the heavens and the earth. And he creates it in seven days. Remember, if you, if you know your story, I'm going to quiz you and see if you're as smart as the 830 crowd. So every time God creates some new thing, what does he say? You are as smart as the 830 folks. Good. Yeah. Every time, G, every time God creates a new thing, he says, it's good. And then when he's created all, everything together, when he's, when he's put man and woman on the earth and, and his creation is complete, he looks at it all and he says, it is very good. But now look at our world. Look at our world. All these thousands of years later, look at our world and what it has become. Yes, there's still immense beauty. There's still signs of God's presence and God's glory. But there are so many things that do not testify of who God is about our world. The violence, the pollution, the damage, the poverty, the, the awfulness of our world. So if the story ends with, well, then everybody who dies in Christ gets out and everybody who doesn't just goes away and the whole world just collapses, then God's plan has failed. God's creation cratered and we just evacuate. That's the story we grew up believing. That God's world was ruined, so he got his people out, and that's that. But instead, the scriptural idea is, no, God redeems the planet Earth. He doesn't give up on it just because our sin stained it. He redeems this world. He redeems all who are in Christ. And we rise and we walk in renewed bodies in a renewed earth. God's plan is ultimately victorious. Let me show you this again in the scriptures. Romans 8, 19 says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. What does that mean? Well, it means when we, are, when we rise again and we're made in the image of Christ, perfectly in his image, and all my sin and all my weirdness is gone, and yours too, will reflect God perfectly. We won't be gods, we'll still be human, but we will be redeemed. We will reflect His love and His grace and His righteousness perfectly. So we'll be, that's the revelation of the sons and the daughters of God. Notice it doesn't say, we're waiting in eager expectation. It says, the creation is waiting. So what Paul's doing is, he's anthropomorphizing, He's anthropomorphizing the world. That's a fancy word that means he's giving human characteristics to a non-human thing. He's taking the earth and saying, the earth can't wait to see us rise again. Why? Because the earth is so messed up now. But someday, when we rise again, it will be renewed as well. It goes on to say, for the creation was set, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I read a story some years ago about a young woman who, when she was a little girl, was tragically molested by a relative, an older male relative. And as an adult, as a young adult woman, she still bore pain from that abuse when she was little. And she met with a surgeon who said, I can, I can help you. I can't take away everything, but I can take away the physical pain. There's, a, there's an operation I could perform that would, that would relieve you of this physical pain. And she, she agreed to the surgery. And on the day of the surgery, like so many of 
us in a moment like that, she got nervous. And she said, I don't know if I want to go through with this. And, and he knelt down by her bedside. He was one of, those, one of those doctors who had a good bedside manner. He knelt down by her and he said, listen, ma'am, when I'm done with this surgery, there won't be anything on you that that man touched. And she, she later said that not only did the surgery work and, and relieve her physical pain, but those words from her surgeon healed her emotionally because she realized, I'm not the same person anymore. I'm not just an abuse victim. I'm, I'm new. I'm refreshed. And that's going to be our world someday. God's going to take away all that sin has touched and replace it with what is perfect. And we'll talk in greater detail about what that means as this series goes along. But just know, God's plan is victorious. Secondly, God's plan is better than our idea of heaven because it makes life on this earth meaningful. Think about it. If we're just getting out of here before the whole thing burns down, then what motive do we have to do good in this world? I mean, why should we care about poverty and pollution and violence and pain all around us unless it affects us directly? I mean, isn't it, if we're trying to make the world a better place, isn't that sort of a wasted effort, sort of like planting flowers at a demolition site or painting a house that's going to be torn down anyway? But if, on the other hand, this whole world will be redeemed, that means every good thing we do in the name of Christ counts eternally. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, when I first came to the church in 2016, one of the first series I preached was on 1 Corinthians 15. I'm sure you all remember that in great detail, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's, the whole chapter is about the resurrection from the dead, not the resurrection of Jesus, although it's mentioned, our resurrection, so after 57 verses of Paul talking in detail about, yes, we will rise again. Yes, here's how we know it's going to happen. Here's what our bodies will be like. Here's how glorious it will be. After 57 verses of that, in, chap in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, if Paul's idea was evacuation, he'd say, therefore, my brothers, don't worry about a thing. Just make it until you die and you've got it made. But instead, he says, no, don't waste a single moment. Don't waste a single relationship. Don't waste a single opportunity because everything you do counts eternally. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I can't promise you I know everything about what that means. But I did re read something from N.T. Wright that speaks to this in his book, uh, Surprised by Hope, which I highly recommend. He talks about how God is like a master architect, and throughout history, he's building something beautiful, like a great cathedral. The work of God is building up this incredible cathedral that will speak for all eternity of his glory. And we're his co-workers. We follow his design. And you maybe are working on the windows, and I'm working on the floor, and, and somebody else is working on the lighting, and somebody else is, is doing the, the craftsmanship and so forth. But, but all of us are doing our part as we use our gifts given to us by God. And someday, when it's all complete, we're going to be standing on the new earth and we're going to look at this, this massive edifice that God has made. And we're going to be awed at the glory of God and what He created, the, the result of millennia of His activity in human lives. But as Wright says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says that each one of us who has used our gifts for His glory will be able to look up at that and say, look, I did that part. That, that's me. He used me there. 
So that's metaphorical. How does that look in real life? Well, let me put it to you this way. Growing up, I always heard about rewards in heaven. You know, everybody who's in Jesus gets saved, absolutely. But some people get rewarded more than others. And I used to think, well, maybe it works like this. The people who are really devoted, maybe they get a nicer house. You know, I got a little mansion over the hilltop. We, we sing that song. Uh, maybe, maybe you get the, the Corvette if you really do well. You get the Honda Civic if you don't. No offense, Honda owners. Um, you know, I'm hoping for a Pinto, right? You know, so maybe that's the way it works. But, you know, when you read the scriptures, you start to think maybe the heavenly rewards are a little different. Maybe the rewards you get aren't necessarily material things so much as they are the enjoyment of the fruit of your labors on earth. So maybe it works this way. Imagine a woman who teaches youth Bible study, students, teenagers Bible study for decades, and then in her later years, she starts to work with the the elderly, those who are homebound, and she goes and visits them and and encourages them and teaches them Bible study. And And then she dies, and then one day Christ returns, and she's resurrected along with everyone who's in Christ. And imagine her in a redeemed earth, and she's continually, throughout eternity, continually walking up to people and and thinking, hey, I remember you. I taught you. And and they say, yes, absolutely. And and they point to another person. They say, that's my child, and that's that's my grandchild. And, And because you invested in me, they walked with Christ. And because you invested in me, they led others to Jesus. And she's constantly meeting people who are there in part because of her influence. And she's also meeting the people she used to go visit in their homes who were so elderly and and, and infirm they couldn't get out of the house. And now they're in vibrant bodies and, and together they go on hiking trips and together they go dancing and together they go running. And meanwhile, all the little selfless, hidden acts she did, offerings she gave, small conversations, long forgotten, Moments when she uttered prayers from her heart, she begins to see all the fruits of those, that not a single thing was wasted, that nothing, nothing went into the wastebasket of history. Everything God saw, every tear, every prayer, every offering, every moment is lived out in eternity in a way that glorifies God and blesses her for the rest of of history. I think that's what it looks like. And even beyond that, imagine this. Our church, our vision for our church is that we would not simply be a place where you'll hear the gospel preached in downtown Conroe. Yes, we want to be that, but so much more. We want to be a church that sends out missionaries into our city. We want to be a church that sends out disciple makers. And along with the other churches that preach the gospel, because we certainly can't do it alone, we want to transform all of Montgomery County in the name of Christ. Imagine if that happens. Here's something I think. The Bible says that in the new earth, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, right? Like the present Jerusalem, only better. I've got it in my head, there's going to be a new Montgomery County. And many of us will live there. And we'll walk the streets, and we'll walk the pastures, and we'll fish in the lakes, and we'll greet the people, and we'll say, glory be to God, look what he has done Thank you, Lord, for letting us be part of this work. And sad to say, there will be some of us there who are there by the grace of God and only by His grace, just like the rest of us, but some of us who will walk around saying, I'm so glad I'm here. I'm glad I trusted Jesus. I wish I had spent more time investing in this world than I did in 
that world. I wish I'd spent more time building up a treasure here by investing in people than investing in a treasure on earth that dried away the moment I died. Because I do think there will be regret in that world. So, it makes life on this earth more meaningful. And finally, it will feel like home. This plan is so much better because if, if heaven was what we typically imagine, if someone says, yeah, heaven's going to be great. You go to be with Jesus and, and then you live with him in some mystical place in the sky forever. I can't imagine what that's like. Maybe that's why we've come up with these ideas of angel wings and halos and strolling on clouds and strumming on harps because that's the best we can do. But this way is so much better. The scriptural way makes so much more sense because we can understand it. Now, will there be things there that are better than anything we can imagine? Absolutely. But we can understand enough about a perfect world, a perfect earth, to get our minds around it, to get excited about it. In Philippians 3, 20-21, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Y'all, I grew up in a little place two, two and a half hours away from here. Uh, the house I grew up in was originally the property of my great-grandparents. When my dad got home from Vietnam, I'd just been born. My mom and my dad and I moved into that old house. They kind of fixed it up. They added on a little bit. But it's still, it's nowhere near a mansion. And yet, it'll always feel like home to me. This weekend, I'm planning to go back. Uh, my cousin's getting married. I'm, I'm planning to go back and, and spend Friday night with my parents and go to the ball game and then go to the wedding the next day. And I'm so excited about that because it's going home. And there's something that draws me back there. And some of you understand what that's like. All of you, there's some place that feels like home to you. And that feeling inside of you is God's reminder that there's something better. There's a home waiting for you. There's a home. When you get there, you'll know it. It'll be far better than the place you grew up. It'll be better than any place you live now. It'll be better than your dream house on this earth. So imagine that captive I told you about earlier. Imagine this man, uh, after days in Washington, D.C., after being treated like a celebrity, after being feasted and, 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 and comforted, he finally says, okay, can I go home now? And they say, absolutely. And they put him on a plane, and he flies to Texas. And he lands at Bush Intercontinental. And his dad has left the car there, and so they get in the car, and they drive to their home. And as he's driving, he sees things he recognizes, but somehow it, it seems different. The grass is greener. There's more trees, and the trees are healthier. He, he drives through streets, and he notices, where's all the homeless people? Where are the crumbling apartment buildings? Where are the... Where's the trash? Where's the broken down cars? Where are the police? I don't see anybody getting pulled over. They pull into his street and he notices that the houses all look perfect. He pulls into the driveway and gets out and his family greets him, those who weren't able to come to D.C. And he notices his grandparents are there. They had died earlier, but they're there, young, Vibrant. Somehow he recognizes them, but they look so much more youthful than he ever knew them on this earth. He notices his dad who lost a leg to diabetes. Now he's got two good legs. His brother, who before he went off 
to, to that foreign country and got captured. He and his brother had had a falling out. They haven't talked in years. Now they're back together and there's no weirdness between them at all. He notices all around him families reunited. He notices all around him lives put together. Health restored. Life renewed. That's what it's going to be like for us. It's going to feel like home, but it's going to be so much better. And the best thing of all, the Scriptures consistently tell us, the best thing of all is we will be in the presence of the one who rescued us. We will be in his presence day and night forever. We'll talk about that in greater detail later in this series, but just know there won't be a single part of us that walks around saying, I'm here by my own merit. Every single one of us will say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for renewing this world. Now, does that make you a little bit homesick? I sure hope it does. Because that's the way we're supposed to live. Longing for the world that is yet to come. Longing for a perfect relationship with our Savior. And that's what the children of God have to look forward to.